There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to... (laughs) You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our presenters today, we have myself, Jacob... Uh, Leo, and we also have Chloe. Oh, yeah, I'm here too. I just didn't turn on my mic. Yeah, so good morning, everyone. And um, yeah, I'll just before we start off the program, I'd like to acknowledge that um, FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. And, of course, FreeCR and Green Left Radio unconditionally supports um, the Aboriginal struggle for land rights, um, sovereignty and justice. Okay, so um, guess getting into um, the kind of our program today, um, we'll get a, we're going to be covering, I guess, a number of kind of different topics um, for this week. Um, so we're going to be... We, um, we have our present, we have our presenter Leo, who later on will be giving us a bit of an interview, or a bit of a dis- we'll be having a bit of a discussion with Leo about um, Serbian politics because um, just recently there was an election that was held in Serbia in on April the April the fourth, and then the first, um, and then we'll also be interviewing Mary Mankovic, um, who is a teacher activist with, we've regularly interviewed for our program about teacher issues. He'll be talking to us about the current sort of EBA negotiations um, um, being negotiated for the Australian Education Union, and then um, and then we will be then interviewing um, in interviewing a recently released um, refugee, um, Abby, um, who was just who has just been recently released from the a week couple of weeks ago from the Park Hotel, but that will be a later interview um, at towards the kind of end of the program. Now, just to give giving that a bit of rundown, um, I guess I want to sort of start a bit of a guess a discussion about. You know, we're in, we're now in a kind of federal election sort of campaign sort of mode for, you know, both the kind of major parties. And both, uh, Morrison and Anthony Albanese actually had their first televised debate on Wednesday. And I guess, I think the debate kind of reflected, I guess, kind of a number of different things. And I guess maybe Leo, if you wanted to kind of start off with some of your observations about the debate. Yeah, um, we're two weeks in almost for the uh, federal election campaign and I think one of the major sort of themes of this election and I'm sure we'll touch on throughout the program is just the um, the lack of difference and just the number of similarities between um, the policies of both the sort of coalition government and also the Labour position on the other side. Um, you know, we always knew that Labor would run a very sort of small target campaign, not really promising much transformational change. But it's been really evident in the past few weeks of the campaign and I think sort of exemplified with the quite boring, I might say, federal election debate. Um, one of the issues 
um, that the leaders sort of clashed, but not really clashed, is this um, issue about the Solomon Islands signing a pact um, with China. This was criticised um, by Albanese on the sort of sense that the Morrison government was not, you know, assertive enough in the Pacific in preventing this from happening. Morrison, in you know, using his sort of um, uh, tough rhetoric on China, and I think we really see this sort of bipartisan imperialism in the Pacific region playing out with this sort of issue. But, yeah, do you have any thoughts on it, Jacob? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the kind of things about this whole discussion about uh, the Solemn Island kind of pact is it's actually kind of like the discussion that's currently happening in the media and amongst our political leaders is actually ignores the voices uh, of the Pacific nations and the of the Pacific islands. Because actually, at the end of the day, you have the Morrison government and you have all these sort of diplomat and kind of officials um, and all sorts of kind of bureaucrats, you know, you know, getting up in arms about this, you know, how could China sign this, um, do this? And, you know, this is like, this is like some form of neo-colonialism. And well, actually, I mean, the problem, the problem is, is, I mean, regardless of whatever political problems that, you know, the Chinese sort of regime might have or the government might have, like you can criticize, this is actually pretty, it's an independent question from what the Pacific Islands actually want. And, you know, most of the Pacific nations have not been happy with um, with the, the Morrison government and with the Australian government's actual role in the region. In fact, the Australian government's role in this region is actually that of an imperialist sort of power that actually dominates um, um, the Pacific Islands economically. And I guess there has been a number of kind of key issues by which the Pacific Islands have been, and a lot of the Pacific nations have been upset with the Morrison government. I mean, the first one has been the fact that the Morrison government, the Pacific Islands, is bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, and the Morrison government is actually has done nothing in terms of um, supporting um, those nations in terms of dealing with climate change. And I guess the second issue uh, is um, is the question of the nuclear subs. When the nuclear sub announcement had uh, had arrived, uh, none of the Pacific nations were consulted about it. And in fact, they have lots of reasons to be very concerned and angry because often the Pacific Islands have been like the space by which, you know, they've been bored the kind of brunt of nuclear testing and so on. Of course, they also don't want to be tangled up into a war um, with um, um, a, a war which these potential um, war machines could be utilised for. And then I guess the third issue, which is more the question around foreign aid, which is, you know, the Morrison government has, you know, cannot claim that they've been giving any sort of meaningful kind of support to the Pacific nations in terms of foreign aid. And, of course, that goes sort of almost hand-in-hand hand a bit with the climate change issue because at, at the end of the day when... Uh, if if one of the Pacific um, nations gets impacted by fly, um, by you know um, by extreme kind of weather events, you know who's actually going to um, pick up the bill for actually reconstructing those communities? It has to be the Australian government. They have to be the ones to foot the bill. Um, and yeah, there's clearly no kind of commitment. So of course, when the when the, if China comes in with a, a better sort of deal uh, for them, I think it's perfectly reasonable that within their sovereign right to actually accept, you know, to sign whatever agreement they want to sign with uh, with another nation. Mm. And um, the Morrison government actually has no kind of leg to stand. And in real, in actual reality, all they're interested in is wanting to kind of contain uh, China's economic influence. They don't actually care really that generally about 
Pacific, um, the, the well-being of the Pacific nations. And, you know, we can only just remember that time when Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton were, I think it was Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton who were kind of like actually laughing about, you know, Pacific islands, um, being flooded. <clears throat> Yeah, I think Josh Feidenberg was there as well. So, you know, it sort of caps off the trio. But just reiterating the two points that you made there, I think it's, you know, I don't think the China deal should be idealised. But at the same time, um, I think it's important to remember that Australia is a sort of sub-imperial power in its own sense in the Pacific. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking it's just sort of subservient to the US. But it has its, you know, very own sort of materialist, capitalist, imperialist interests in the Pacific. And it's exercising those quite clearly here and you know the second point just the absolute goal of australia you know doing you know virtually nothing on climate change condemning that whole region to disaster and then having the goal to you know tell the pacific who they can and can't um sign deals with you know it's it's very hypocritical and like you say the media has been very silent on it but one issue that's sort of related to this um topic of militarism and military build-up in the region um maybe not on first glance, is the issue of refugee rights and, um, once again, very little difference, if any at all, from the two major parties on this. Um, uh, Labor leader, um, Anthony Albanese, saying that, you know, he supports boat turnbacks and that um, offshore um, processing and detention will sort of remain um, if Labor comes in government. Morrison, you know taking credit for being the one who actually initiated the Stop the Boats policy as Immigration Minister um, when he served in that capacity. So, yeah, what does that tell us, Jacob, about the sort of state of play in this issue and um, the lack of difference between the two major parties? Yeah. Well, I think, seeing if I presented, Chloe, did you want to make a comment on this? Oh, well, I think, um, you know, Leah gave us a good rundown. I mean, both major parties um, are basically the same when it comes to um, refugee rights. Um, you know, they both support offshore detention. They both support boat turnbacks, which has really been a cause of um, a lot of um, the demonization um, of refugees um, who came here by boat. Um, but one thing the Australian Labor Party has promised to do is to get rid of temporary protection visas, which, um, you know, one of the conditions of being on a temporary protection visa is that um, you can't reunite with your family. So many of the refugees that come here haven't seen their family for 10 years. So I guess that is one good thing. But, you know, you would have seen Anthony, uh, Anthony Albanese um, even get confused as to what the policies were. He forgot um, he, uh, that he, you know, I, I remember him stumbling and sort of not remembering and kind of backflipping at, at different press, press um, conferences. So mm-hmm. it's not very comforting. Yeah. Well, I think on one point I got to wake actually drawing a bit on my memories of um, – because I first got involved in, I guess I first got involved in politics in 2013 around the, that was a, that was a federal, that was like two to three federal elections ago. Um, that was when Tony Abbott got elected as prime minister. And I guess one, one of the sort of interesting kind of things about that was, you know, the Labour apologists always sort of made this sort of argument that, you know, we have to, we have to go to the right on refugees because otherwise, the Liberal Party will wedge us on this issue. And, of course, that's when um, Kevin Rudd introduced the, the PNG solution, which was basically mm. – it was basically the Labor Party saying to, me, um, saying to the rest of the – to the public and to the Liberal Party, look at us, we also have a strong border policy too. Um, and then, of course, I think at the time, Tony Abbott actually tried to come up with a more extreme policy. In fact, I think Tony Abbott almost tried to imply that there would um, – 
there would have to be military action in terms of uh, some kind of military action in terms of boat turnbacks, like some that kind of intensity. Although it already kind of involves military yeah, in some well, aspect o- anyway. Um, yeah. But I think he was essentially pushing a stronger operation, so a more extreme version of that kind of policy. And then, um, and then I guess yeah. And now we're sort of at this time where actually you know a lot of refugees have actually been released. Um, you know, there's less stuff in the media about you know, boats coming to Australia, etc. Mm. Yet for some reason, Labor wants to go out of the way to insist that yeah. we support this. Uh, didn't you know to, um, to the public? Do we support this? Like, mm. And actually, I think that's actually kind of an interesting thing. Although I know that in the federal election debate, you know, they did debate more things. You know, they did debate a lot of kind of contemporary sort of issues besides uh, the issue of, um, you know, Solemn Islands and... Uh, refugee rights. But I do think there's almost a bit of an observation to be made here that, you know, we're living in a sort of, you know, in a sort of crisis at the moment where, you know, you have, you know, floods, you know, you have the impacts of the pandemic, um, but you also have all these other kind of issues. You have these real kind of cost of living issues. And it's almost like you see the way politicians are talking about this campaign is almost like completely disconnected from everyone's sort of personal experience. And of course, it's no wonder that when it came to the kind of polling results, um, I think it was like something along the lines of, okay, so Albanese has like, I think a 40% sort of approval rating following, uh, following the, the, the debating, um, the result, um, debate, while Morrison, I think, sits at like somewhere like 35%. But then of course, the rest of the percentage there are still kind of undecided voters. And I think, you know, it actually just probably reflects that actually both major parties are not necessarily offering much to to the public and it doesn't necessarily connect to the public's experience and of course that's not i'm not necessarily saying that oh it's because they're not putting forward um it's because they're not really putting forward anything that actually could entice people to actually want to go to vote and i think that has always been the sort of reality of australian politics because it's always the outcomes have always been decided by you know the swinging voters the kind of undecided voter and if there's nothing (laughs) being offered put on offer, then, yeah, it's kind of hard to see how people could be infused about this election. Mm. But um, I guess one thing I wanted to see if Leah wanted to talk about was, I guess, one last point I think we should probably make is about some of the, the kind of debate and discussion that was had about the NDIS. Uh, yeah, um, it sort of um, was remarked in passing, Scott Morrison, um, in response to a question about... Um, uh, one person whose um, son is an NDIS recipient said um, he's blessed that um, I think the exact words were that you know him and Jenny don't have to go through you know the whole NDIS system, um, and I think it you know not only just showed you know the sort of ableism that's really entrenched in a lot of these leaders' mindset you know basically implying that, you know, they're lucky to not have um, disabled children, but just, you know, the lack of action on the NDIS. It's a system that's, you know, and we've talked about on the show previously, it's heavily privatised, that's um, heavily sort of contracted out, and it's um, it's a system that needs a lot of improvement. And um, just to touch on a point that you made earlier, it's, um, it's, it's tactically... You know, Labor at the last election offered a lot more on the NDIS, but on this one, um, not as much. And tactically, it doesn't make sense for Labor to, um, you know, if, even if the whole um, point goal is to win the election, doesn't make sense for them to have such a low target to not even, um, and to keep, you know, being held back by these issues which they think might, um, 
haunt them. But yeah, on the NDIS, um, do you have any sort of final comments, Jacob, on Scott Morrison's sort of comments? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, Morrison's comments were completely ableist at the end of the day. And I think, you know, every, every parent of a, uh, of some, um, someone with disability, you know, has a right to be outraged. And any person with disability, ha- you know, they have the right to be outraged about this because I think this is, you know, I think it is just disgraceful. And I guess, one of the kind of things um, that Morrison kind of said in terms of his debate, because basically one of the kind of interesting kind of things is the Morrison government is trying to play on this card of that we're better economic managers. And in terms of his attack on Albanese, on the whole question of NDIS, it was all coaxed within this sort of language of we are economic managers, we are better at managing the economy. And of course, that is actually the one of the problems with the NDIS, the fact that um, so much of NDIS's funding, funding is conditional when the actual reality is people, um, the government should be actually footing the bill for any support that is actually needed for any person with disability. Like, it's just outright. Like, the fact is these po- politicians like Morrison and even Anthony Albanese descent are actually, you know, they're, comp- they're so disconnected from the lived experience of people with disabilities that, you know, all they can see it, they can just see it in all, they only just see the issue in terms of abstract sort of economism, which I think, you know, I think it is quite outrageous. And I think, you know, we, I think, you know, we, um, we obviously have to fight for full NDIS funding. And I think there's no sort of compromise that we should have there. And I think, you know, all this discussion about, well, we're better economic managers, I think is actually a distraction from what actually needs to be discussed. Yeah, agreed. And just to finish off, perhaps, um, yeah, very good comment there about um, viewing all the and just being removed from that lived experience. And I think that's characteristic of both major parties' campaigns. Just you know, this abstraction, and which ultimately you know prompts people to disengage from politics, which is why we have such a big problem with that. Yeah, and no wonder um, Morrison said that he feels blessed because he doesn't have to deal with a system that he's making so much worse. Yeah, or making people suffer from. Suffer from, yeah, exactly. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go, and I don't like it, and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the second Newport Jazz Festival. 60 plus bands, seven venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians. 29th of April to 1st of May. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office in Market Street or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au The Friendly Festival. The Newport Jazz Festival is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I thought we'd go into a bit of a discussion with our presenter Leo, um, who's actually been fo- um, who actually follows you know follows um, Eastern European politics and is also someone from an Eastern kind of European background as well. <laughs> 
Um, about the kind of ser- the elections that actually took place in Serbia on, I guess, April 4th. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe to kind of start off, I guess, this discussion. I mean, Leo, do you want to sort of give us, you know, for our listeners, because a lot of our listeners might not necessarily know that much about politics in Serbia, because I guess one of the things about Eastern Europe is Eastern Europe tends to be, you know, tends to be one of the countries that is probably least covered in even in left-wing kind of media. Um, often, you know, you, the main sort of countries that seem to get dominated are those of those Western Europe, and we don't, often don't hear much about Eastern Europe. So I guess, yeah, I want to hear a bit, a bit of a background on Serbian politics to take, um, to take us through to the implications of the election. Yeah, sure. So um, the elections that happened a couple of weeks ago now... Um um, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a niche subject, the both presidential and parliamentary election that happened in Serbia. But as you mentioned, um, you know, southeastern European politics isn't really, um, doesn't have much sort of coverage. So it's always good to sort of um, dive into these topics a bit. And as we get to later, sort of broad implications for, you know, the wider European context itself. But um, look, you can sort of talk about Serbian and broader Balkan and ex-Yugoslav politics um, sort of historically as much as you can, but perhaps, you know, a good sort of starting space for Serbian politics in general is um, the collapse of Yugoslavia, which, you know, was mired by ethnic conflicts. Um, I won't sort of get into the causes there, but, um, you know, a lot of unresolved sort of ethnic minority issues, um, lots of nationalism um, stemming up from the Serbian side, Slobodan Milosevic, um, and, you know from the Croatian side, um, Tudjiman and then Bosniak, so Begovic. Um, but on the Serbian context especially, uh, Milosevic sort of came from the rump of the former um, Serbian section of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, um, transformed into the Socialist Party of Serbia and sort of synthesised basically Serbian nationalism with this sort of almost greater Serbian Yugoslav, um, Yugoslavism, Yugoslav nationalism, seeking to integrate um, all these sort of republics which at this point wanted to leave Yugoslavia with um, sort of a greater sort of Serbia tinge to it. And, um, you know, this was a um, uh, system that was, you know, had a lot of corruption, a lot of authoritarianism. At that time, um, Serbia was also hit by very devastating sanctions. Um, And then after the war in Kosovo, um, it was also bombarded in 1999. Um, so a lot of sort of trouble emerged for Milosevic, who was toppled in 2000. Um, you then had a sort of united opposition from various sort of centre-right to centrist forces. Um, coming out of that, people like Zoran Djindjic, who was assassinated a couple of years after. Um, and then um, you, and that's the sort of prevailing sort of tension that's been in sort of Serbian politics since the collapse of Yugoslavia. It's um, been this sort of almost false choice between um, uh, the sort of so-called communists, who, you know, in reality were really nationalists from the Milosevic side, sort of centrists who were um, aligned with the sort of Democratic Party, and then um, yet even further ultra-nationalists um, with the likes of um, Vojislav uh, Šešel. But basically, to sort of recap, um, the past sort of 10 years, the current president of Serbia, who's also served as um, Prime Minister, mm-hmm. uh, Defence Minister, and previously Information Minister, he um, left the ultra-nationalist Serbian Radical Party, formed his own party, the Serbian uh, Progressive Party, which is a bit of a misleading name. It's sort of 
pretty sort of centre-right, sort of populist Liberal Conservative Party, um, seeks to balance East and West, and he's sort of fa- found the perfect um, sort of equation appealing to both um, quite a significant proportion of the population who, you know, are sympathetic to Russia, but also trying to integrate Serbia into the EU. And, yeah, he's been in power in various coalitions for the past sort of decade. He's really strengthened his power, uh, won the presidential election with something uh, like 60 to 40 percent of the vote. And then um, his sort of part in the parliamentary elections will have another big sort of majority after taking about 40 percent of the vote. So... Um, we'll talk about more about maybe the sort of implications about you know foreign relations and that sort of stuff. But yeah, he's very much consolidated power. Um, he rules it through the media, through various oligarchs who you know emerged after the privatizations, and yeah, they're the sort of elite that run this um, run the state, unfortunately. At yeah. This point on. So in terms of these kind of elections, um, I guess we're into because um, I guess the kind of result is the the. Um, from, if I'm clarifying, um, the, the dominant sort of party basically won kind of again, which is, I guess, the socialist yep. sort of party. Uh, not quite. The progressive party. Which the progressive is party. Yep. Um, the progressive party. And I guess, what were some of the uh, other sort of parties that sort of ran? Like, what, like even the smaller, so even small minor parties, like what was the sort of different yeah, visions a, that were sort of contested in terms of this election? Yeah, just to give a sort of broad overview, um, uh, the opposition boycotted, most of the opposition boycotted the last elections because of, you know, various corruption scandals. They didn't believe the election, you know, results to be valid. So this is the first time in, well, it's only been two years, but in two years that we've had the opposition participate. Um, uh, the Serbian Progressive Party, uh, the one led by President Vucic, um, contested. They were the winners. They had sort of a big coalition around them of various populist sort of parties. Um, their coalition partner, uh, Milosevic's former party, the Socialist Party of Serbia, uh, Nela by Ivan Dacic, Ivan Dacic, um, uh, they, um, uh, also contested. Once again, ostensibly sort of center left, left wing, trying to use the sort of imagery of the socialist past, but in reality, once again, pretty nationalist, pretty populist on a lot of these big questions. Um, the opposition itself, there was sort of numerous sort of strands, um, uh, some of the opposition formed a um, um, sort of an alliance um, consisting of, you know, broadly centre to centre-right um, parties. Um, and then there were more sort of right-wing opposition figures, um, uh, you know, ranging from more sort of religiously influenced to more just outright nationalist and a couple of small sort of leftish um uh, uh, sort of parties that sort of emerged um, in the wake of some of the popular protests you might or might not be familiar with, especially with some of the Rio Tinto dealings um, that have had with the Serbian government. But just to sort of provide a bit of analysis on two main things, um, just in terms of the far right, um, the Serbian Radical Party that was led by Šešća, that was a big sort of uh, force in the 90s that's almost really collapsed. The far-right vote has splintered into all these different, you know, sort of smaller forces and channeled back into the Progressive Party. Um, and also the opposition. This has been a sort of perennial issue for Serbian oppositions. Um, the sort of current alliance, united sort of alliance that contested the election, it was very much done to parallel the original sort of DOS, the democratic opposition of Serbia um, that ran in the 2000s to topple Milosevic. Um, and it's basically a big tent, and that's been one of the big sort of things. Should the Serbian opposition work with, um, you know, sort of more right-wing forces, you know, to provide 
a sort of big tent platform to overthrow the current corrupt government. But then, of course, the problem from a left-wing sort of socialist perspective is what next? And I think one of the reasons that Vucic came to power is because even once Milosevic was toppled, the government privatised a lot of um, state-run firms and, you know, things didn't really get better Mm. uh, despite that. Yeah, and I guess um, I want to go into a bit of the we, we can go into a bit of the kind of implications of the results for broader politics in Eastern Europe soon. But I guess a, a question that needs to be kind of asked as well is, I mean, uh, although it is obviously obviously it's often difficult for a lot of uh, countries within the Eastern kind of European kind of context because of you know the whole fall of the Soviet Union, etc. But I guess the question kind of is raised: I guess what is the actual left sort of position? like the left perspectives that's being put on left forces that exist in Serbia and in, especially in the context of this election, because I guess um, it doesn't seem clear to me that, you know, neither the opposition or the ruling party fit within a sort of standard sort of left-right sort of framework. In fact, they both come off as um, capitalist parties at the end of the day from your sort of discussion that you've sort of linked, but maybe you might be able to yeah. enlighten us a bit more on what is actually the left sort of positioning in terms of this left and, and what, what is the left voice? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And I think it's uh, a sort of uh, phenomenon that we see across a lot of former um, socialist states in sort of central, southeastern and eastern Europe, where um, um, we have um, a political system that doesn't, you know, have a lot of history of democratic political culture. And you see parties that don't really um, represent um, ordinary sort of interests or, you know, the sort of ideologies that we see in the West. A lot of them come through sort of oligarch sort of powers like we see sort of in Ukraine. Um, But um, in Serbia, for instance, um, the problem is that the sort of socialist or left-wing name is tarnished um, by um, the former sort of communist past and by current parties trying to claim that sort of history, like the Socialist Party does in Serbia, they use the iconography of, you know, former Yugoslav sort of sayings, mottos. Um, they even had the grandson of um, Josip Broz Tito, the former president of Yugoslavia, run on, like, the list of the Socialist Party of Serbia a couple of years. So um, they're very much trying to sort of get this nostalgia going um, in terms of left-wing policies. But unfortunately, you know, these aren't really left-wing politics um, you know, by name only. Um, in terms of actual credible left-wing opposition, uh, most of it has come from the streets. Um, Belgrade had um, sort of street protests in the past few years in response to a whole lot of stuff, environmental issues, corruption, sort of called one of five million. And we've seen similar manifestations across the Balkans um, in Bosnia and Herzegovina about um, sort of police failings about a missing sort of boy, similar stuff in Croatia, a lot of environmental concerns as well, Rio Tinto, um, tried to expand to Serbia and do all sorts of deals um, in the forestry sort of sector with the government, and there was a lot of popular mobilisation against that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's hard not to be cynical, but um, the left-wing forces that do sort of come, they are predominantly on the streets, and as you observe, there is quite a sort of strengthened right-wing and a sort of centrist liberal opposition um, that provides, provides the main opposition and then some far-right elements as well there. Yeah. And um, I guess going into, I guess, some of the kind of results is um, what has been the kind of implications of these of the election for broader politics in Eastern Europe? Yeah, I think just the scale. I mean, Vucic's victory was always sort of expected by just the scale of it, um, despite, you know, emboldened opposition. You know, we thought with the sort of um, 
uh, stuff about Rio Tinto, about um, different sort of issues that were happening that they might make more of a dent. Um, but um, uh, I think it's a bit disappointing for the left in the Balkans in general um, because um, it undermines this sort of any hope that it, it's very difficult to get these entrenched, um, very entrenched sort of leaders out. Um, uh, you know, once once they're in rule for a couple of years, it slowly becomes decades. And once they take over, you know, state media um, and all these sort of big firms, it, it becomes very difficult to remove them. So I think that's the biggest sort of implication for Eastern Europe. Um, but I guess we'll touch on that with the next question about sort of Ukraine. It does have sort of some geopolitical significance as well. Yeah. Well, actually, that's always got to be the most interesting because every, everyone's obviously following uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, although in some sad way it's also been normalised in a certain degree. In fact, you know, I remember kind of like the time where we followed every sort of regular kind of event. Now it's sort of like, yeah, this is just something that's happening in the background. Uh yeah, life goes on kind of thing that's been, yeah, that's been a bit of a tragedy actually in some sense. But I guess it's kind of, it would be interesting to know how have the events in Ukraine actually shaped politics in the, in the region as it, as it's currently happening right now? Mm, yeah, it's a very interesting question, especially, you know, as we look, you know, sorry, in horror, that's what's happening in Ukraine. You know, in some sense, we are still, you know, protected just by the distance of how far away from the conflict. But, you know, for a lot of Eastern and Southeastern European states, they are pretty close to what's happening in Ukraine. So it definitely had an impact on the election. Um, I think Vucic sort of campaigned on the problems in Ukraine as positioning himself as, you know, a safe incumbent for all this turbulence. But the sort of um, analysis there is very interesting because um, a large section of um, the Serbian population and Serbs in general um, are supportive of Russia, you know, there's a long history there of, um, you know, the two sort of predominantly orthodox states supporting each other. Um, you know, Russia likes to see itself rightly or wrongly and, you know, correctly or incorrectly as um, sort of bulwark to the West, Western imperialism and Serbia and Serbs sometimes tend to sort of idealise that role that, you know, Russia plays in standing up for the West. So there's a lot of Russophiles um, in Serbia um, but one thing that Vucic has done very well, um, you know, probably to serve his own sort of capitalist interests in keeping, you know, uh, both sort of sets of markets open is to negotiate a very sort of tricky thing between the West and the East and keeping, you know, decent relations with Russia um, and China, especially more so, especially around the vaccines um, at the early stages of the pandemic. Serbia was quite sort of quick in vaccinating its population um, and the West also still seeking to join the EU and finding a sort of mid-balance. So um, I think Vucic sort of recognised that, you know, it's it's and Serbia and the UN uh, sort of condemned Russia's actions. They voted against, uh, they voted for the sort of motion that passed the UN General Assembly um, so they've definitely condemned it, but they've also been hesitant for things like sanctions and other things. So I think it's definitely a tightrope um, for um, Serbian sort of politicians. Um, but I think Vucic, you know, without giving him too much credit, has provided a bit of an example for what, you know, Serbia is an officially neutral country enshrined in its constitution, a bit of a model for what other possibly Central and Eastern European states could do, recognising that, you know, neither East nor West is... Um, uh, the best, and um, yeah, there's a long history of sort of non-alignment in Yugoslavia, and perhaps you know, thinking about geopolitics in that sort of sense could be useful in the future. Yeah, well, this has been um, a very good um, kind of discussion, um, Leo, and I guess I've learned quite a, uh, quite a bit about um, politics in Serbia. And I guess what can you, I guess 
any kind of final kind of comments to kind of conclude this discussion I guess we're having? Uh, not particularly. Um, the Balkans, I was there in December pretty recently, and a lot of the region is still devastated by the impacts of the war in the 90s. There's a still a lot of nationalism, still a lot of problems. Um, but yeah, like in Australia, like anywhere else, um, you know, real change is going to happen through people power. And um, yeah, there's a big problem with demographics, a lot of young people leaving. But yeah, if there can be some sort of big mobilizations and incorporating all different sectors of society, that's something to look forward to, I guess. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. Cohealth is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to um, Green Left Radio. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Uh, so far in the program, we've had a bit of a discussion about um, Serbian politics as well as more locally the Australian Federal Election Campaign and back to some sort of news um, from Green Left, um, covering more on um, some of the things away from the Federal Election. Um, the University of Sydney staff have um, voted quite strongly in favour of industrial action recently and they could see um, the uni being essentially shut down for a couple of days. Um, Jacob... Do you have more details about this sort of development? Yeah, so um, basically this is um, this is being reported in Green Left and you can read the article online um, titled Uni of Sydney Staff Decides on Industrial Action. And so essentially they have voted, um, they voted on April 14th to basically strike for 48 hours on May 11th to 12th. And to give a bit more kind of detail about the, about the strike, it's very much motivated by... Uh, by making a bit of a start um, to fight for kind of fairer um, work, working conditions, and essentially they've also decided to decide, um, they've also made a decision that they'll go on strike again two weeks following um, May 11th to the 12th on 23rd if there's no progress made in negotiations in terms of like a new enterprise bargain with university management. And of course, they've committed to escalate strike action uh, throughout the year, and I guess this is quite actually I think a very good kind of progressive kind of development because you know this is a this is a this is 
universities have been very hard hit by um, by COVID um, and they're still being hard hit. And of course, that's given the excuse to sort of management to make all these cuts and redundancies and also the exploitation of casual kind of labour. And so, yeah, this industrial action very much pushes that. And one of the good, one of the actual great things is a significant 78%, there was a significant 78% turnout of about 2,000 NTU members at University of Sydney. I mean, that doesn't, that still doesn't make a huge, the big proportion of the staff at Unisid because Union Density at, Union Density at, um, at the NT, at, at, um, at universities is still quite low, but I mean, this is, this is, I think, quite a good turnout. And in fact, 90 out of these, 96% of them voted in favour of industrial actions. And of course, one of the things that a bit, that comes in a bit of the background for this is workplace laws, you know, severely limit workers' rights to strike. Striking is only legal during enterprise bargaining and a union must prove that a secret ballot of members has been taken. And now, probably one of the things, um, that this decision, um, a bit of background to this decision is that um, a democratic internal discussion since last August has produced very much a long list of log of claims. And what they're kind of demanding is they want to end to the forced redundancies, 30 days uh, gender affirmation leave, um, improved rights for professional staff to work from home, uh, protection of academic rights to their current um, research allocations, uh, enforceable targets for First Nations employment, a fair pay increase and an end to exploitative um, casualisation. And in fact, really, I mean, it's quite it's quite evident that, as, as it's being reported in Green Left, that really the only way that they've even been able to get management to even discuss, put these claims on the table for discussion has been through strike because really the response of management has been just to, you know, we'll just get a higher senior lawyer to basically quash kind of any kind of dissent. Um, and, you know, the management could actually kind of accept these kind of claims as the university actually does have the funding. Um, so, yeah, this is, um, but yeah, this is a definitely kind of an exciting sort of, it's good, a good um, initiative, and I think you know we have, to, we definitely will support any sort of strike action coming into into the future. Yeah, what's also been really exciting, Jacob, has been just the um, impact that casuals have had in this campaign and in this vote, and um, uh, we've all sort of read uh, just the stories of exploitation of casual workers, um, you know, from wage theft, you know, being paid piece rates for things that you know, should be paid hourly, being paid the wrong piece rates, for example, um, uh, multiple choice marking um, rates for marking essays, um, all sorts of nasty, horrible stuff, redundancies, Monash University, for example, making, I can't cite the exact figures, for hundreds of millions of dollars of profits in 2020, 2021, yet sacking something of about 500 to 800 um, staff. Um, Like you said, it's a bit of a tricky issue to negotiate in terms of because the federal government hasn't given universities enough funding, but at the same time, you know, very sort of corporatized uh, managerial VCs and the administrators have really not supported the staff. So I think it's really important that casuals and all university staff um, get organized because um, casualization is a big problem in Australia universities and it's really holding universities back because, you know, the more casualized and stressed the staff are, that has a big impact on the student um, quality of education and yeah, hopefully we see these strikes in industrial action replicated across um, Australia. Uh, yep, yep, all good. <clears throat> 
Oh, yeah. So um, we'll just go play um, a quick announcement and we'll get around to yeah, the next part of our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we're very happy to have Mary Menkovich, who is a high school teacher and is a teacher union activist with the Australian Education Union. And we're having we have her on the program to have a bit of a discussion. In fact, there's actually been a lot of debate within the union um, about um, the kind of proposed kind of enterprise bargaining agreement that has actually currently been negotiating, um, that's currently being negotiated with, um, um, with you know, the Department of Education by the um, Australian kind of education union. So, yeah, good morning, Mary. Good morning, Jacob. How are you? And hello to your listeners. Yeah. Well, I guess kind of to start off, I guess, the kind of discussion... What can you give us a background, I guess, of some of the issues impacting on school teachers in the lead up to these to these kind of negotiations? Ah, uh, yes. Well, the main demands for teachers, education support staff, and also the principal class um, has been workload. There were two surveys that uh, were carried out, and that clearly highlighted that workload was excessive and unsustainable. Uh, of course, COVID exacerbated this crisis in our workload, but there was a crisis even prior to, to COVID and to the remote teaching that we all had to do. There, there were two surveys. The first one took place in 2016, and it found what every teacher, every AAU member knew, that teachers work something like 53 hours per week. So that's something like 15 hours of unpaid overtime every week. Education support staff, something like 60% of, of those workers, said that they could not finish their allocated tasks in the time that they had at work. And principals are working something like 60 hours per week. So as a consequence, um, teachers, the education support workers and principals made it absolutely clear that excessive workload had to be finally addressed. It's been an issue for many years and for 
you know, from any previous um, EBA negotiations, but it was like, you know, this is the final straw. We've actually got to do something about it. Um, and I think the officials took note of those feelings. Um, and then in addition to, to workload, which of course means that more teachers have to be employed, salaries that reflect the value of the work of all school staff was high on the agenda, um, especially for education support staff who they don't even get a paid lunch break. And they're some, of, they, they're some of the lowest paid workers in Australia, some of them starting from something like $45,000 annually. Um, yeah, so I think they were the major issues. There were other issues, of course, like contract teaching or casualisation of work. Um, but I think what I've just explained to you, they were the core of what we were all asking for. Yep, thanks for that, Mary. Good morning, by the way. Leo here as well. Um, Hi, Leo. Uh, just building up on some of those issues, um, what can you tell us about the proposed agreement that's now been um, sort of voted um, in favour by the union that's been put forward by the AU leadership and why is it inadequate um, to address some of the issues that you just mentioned in improving working conditions for teachers? So as soon as most uh, AU members saw what was being proposed, there was an immediate negative response. Um, many people focused on what was clearly obvious, which was uh, the pay. So the officials uh, were saying that we were getting over 2%, when actually um, it, it's, it's less than 2%. And they, the officials used all sorts of confusing calculations to, you know, to say that it was over 2%. Um, and when you think about the inflation rate, the official inflation rate is um, 3.5, I think, um, and... Uh, like fuel, housing, all those other essentials are going up and continuing to go up. It's not like they've just stopped at 3.5%. So, so that was the first uh, reaction to that. But there's significant problems with um, a lot of the other things that are being proposed. So contrary to the propaganda that workload will be substantially decreased, um, it won't be. Firstly, class sizes are not addressed at all. This is a major issue for, for workload, especially for primary school teachers who have generally much larger classes than teachers in secondary schools. Um, secondly, we've lost three of our professional practice days, which were days given to give teachers some relief. So you would get a day um, free to, to do preparation or something else related to your work. And we had four of those a year, and now we've lost three of them. So we only have one. Thirdly, um, the thing that the officials are heralding as an historic win, the one and a half hours of reduction in face-to-face -face teaching, is, is uncertain and it's temporary. It's uncertain for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because this part of the deal is not written into the main body of the EBA, but it's put into a deed. Now, there's some... Uh, debate about what this means, but I've been told and others have by industrial lawyers and by other union officials that that means that it is not covered by Fair Work, the Fair Work Commission. If there is a breach in an EBA, um, the Fair Work Commission deals with it immediately and it is resolved according to what is stipulated in the EBA. 
if it is not in the Fair Work Commission, then the union will have to take it to court, and the union has um, admitted that this is the process. Now, court cases can take up to two years or perhaps even longer. The outcome is not um, guaranteed, and it will cost the union money. Um, so that's why we say that it's um, uncertain. But the second reason that it's uncertain is that there is a huge teacher shortage at, mom at the moment, and they will need something like 2,000 teachers to be employed to be able to um, implement a, re a reduction in the face-to-face -face teaching. So if we can't find teachers now, and many teachers that are currently employed are having a long, hard look at their their jobs and wondering whether they should stay, especially after the lockdown, like workers in other industries. Um, so if they can't find teachers to employ and teachers are leaving, then um, they're not going to be able to, to, um, to decrease that face-to-face -face teaching anyway. Mm. Um, there's a couple other things. Sorry, I'll just quickly go over the other things. Um, so that's right. The other things that haven't been addressed in terms of workload are the numerous meetings that teachers are expected to go to, the extra admin work, such as um, responding to, to heaps of emails. Um, so none of those have been discussed. And then um, there's another uh, historic, according to the officials, win in the proposed deal, which is time in lieu for teachers who go on excursions, camps, um, all sorts of other um, or sporting activities and so forth. The thing that they didn't mention at first, and it only came out when they were questioned, is that this has not been um, funded. So schools, individual schools, are going to have to somehow find the money to be able to pay teachers in lieu or give them the time which costs schools money. And most government schools are strapped for money or in, in deficit. So what this means is that it won't happen or it will happen because teachers out of the goodness of the hearts will continue to go on camps, excursions and so forth. Or a third proposition that's been put forward is that uh, schools should ask parents to pay, which is absolutely wrong. It's privatising education. It means that many families won't be able to pay and you'll have differences in um, what children can experience. Um, yeah, so they're, they're um, some of the things... I think I did mention that there's nothing about contract teaching. So all in all, most of us think it's it's a rotten deal. Hmm. And that's getting into, I guess, the kind of next kind of question, I guess, is, um, you know, the, you, what can you, I guess, tell us, I guess, about the results, I guess, of the first vote that took place, which saw a 40% no vote to the proposed grant, which I think is quite, you know, quite significant. Um, and I guess, in, because usually when it, sometimes when it comes, you know, just my, even my experience of, uh, in my union experience, sometimes that when it comes to kind of a, um, any sort of proposed sort of EBA agreements, they usually aren't this kind of contested. So a 40% sort of no kind of vote is actually quite significant in that sense. And I guess, what can you, I guess, tell us about, I mean, because you yourself have been part of, you know, working with other left-wing teachers, trying to build a campaign against um, this proposed agreement, in a sense, and I guess, what is kind of the alternative that has kind of been put forward? So tell me both about the results and the alternative that is being fought for. Thanks, Jacob. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. 40% is significant. Um, I don't, in my experience, I don't think there's ever been um, a vote against something that the officials have proposed that has been that high. Um, so they're quite 
freaked out. They're really angry. Some um, sub-branches and individual members are telling me that organisers are coming around and asking them, why did you vote no? Um, so that's demonstrating that they are quite worried about the next stage. Um, and, and we have to look at the context of the vote. So some of those people who voted for the agreement probably voted for it because they had not been exposed to uh, the facts of the... Like what, what we're saying, the concerns that we have about the proposed deal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, and others who voted uh, yes, sorry, who voted yes, may also have thought, well, it's a done deal because that's how the, the media was presenting it and the government was presenting it and even the union officials to a certain extent. So, you know, they probably would have voted yes um, because they felt they had no choice and maybe because they have no confidence that the leadership is going to be able to offer them anything better. The leadership also put on a massive propaganda campaign saying how wonderful it was, sending emails to every single member. Uh, at least two leaflets went to every member's home address. And the full-time organisers went to schools also spruiking how great this deal was and that people should be grateful and vote yes. Any critical comments were deleted from the AU website, from the Facebook page, so there was quite a bit of control of the narrative that was going on. The ratification process uh, was strictly controlled. It was via delegated small meetings around the state, which means that, you know, if there's um, a few activists, they can't get around to every single um, ratification meeting. Although I must say the meetings I attended, and I went to three, there were lots of people there that I had not had contact with who got up and spoke strongly against the proposed deal. Some people saying their whole sub-branches had voted no, which is another sign of how people are feeling. Um, so, yes, we're saying to people that in this next stage of the vote, which is every single member of the Education Department now gets to vote, um, that we're, we're calling on people to vote no for exactly the same reasons that we asked AEU members to vote no. It's not in our interest to vote for this deal. It is a wage cut. There is no relief in workload. Um, it's just a rotten deal. So we should continue to vote no. And so you've asked, what are the alternatives? Well, the alternative is that the leadership goes back and negotiates um, much more seriously. In, in addition to that, uh, leading up to this proposed deal, we did not take one day of any kind of industrial action. We used our weakest tools, which were bans on any politicians coming to our schools, bans on meetings. Um, some schools didn't have to ban any meetings because my school, for example, during lockdown, we didn't have any meetings. Uh, and um, lobbying. The other thing was to lobby state ALP politicians who are members of the very government that has maintained Victorian government schools as the lowest funded in Australia. So, you know, you can be a bit sceptical about the effectiveness of that. So we're saying, you know, and I, a lot of members are ready to take some form of industrial action to back up the negotiations that are going on and also to empower members. It's, it's going to be our working conditions, so we should have the right to be empowered and engaged in this campaign, not just sit back and be told, this is the best deal that we can get for you. 
just on that, Mary, I was about to ask you um, about this second round, but you've summed it up really nicely. Um, we are a little bit short on time, but um, just before we conclude, do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, I would urge people uh, to go onto the Facebook pages. Uh, the face, for example, there's a group called Melbourne Educators for Environmental and Social Justice, or Message for short. Read some of the stuff there if you're not sure. Um, educate yourself about what this still really means and spread the word that people should be opposing it because it is not in our interest. Thank you very much, Mary. Thanks for joining us and shedding light on these AU-EBA negotiations. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, much, Mary. Yes, thank you for having me. Bye. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. If you wanted to. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, we'll just have we just um, had an interview with Mary Mankovich, um, um, talking about I guess the EBA agreement that is currently being negotiated for um, on by, by the Australian Education Union, and also why uh, left wing teachers should be opposing the po- proposed agreement because it is not adequate in terms of serving the interests of te- um, school teachers. Now it is around eight a.m. and um, now it's a bit um, time to do the green left kind of activist calendar and there's quite a number of events um that we kind of want to highlight i mean the first kind of event to note is there is actually an emergency rally called for palestine um and that is going to be happening at 1 p.m at the state library this saturday and why this rally has been called um has been actually in response to some of the attacks that israel have done on Palestine, um, including during the kind of holy time of Ramadan, which is, yeah, completely kind of outrageous. Um, and then um, the other event, which will be happening at 2pm, um, there'll be a rally at um, the outside the Broadmeadows Detention Centre in Mitre. And this rally will be basically... With a number, with a lot of the refugees being released for, from detention, the kind of demand, they are still refugees who are imprisoned in the Mitre Detention Centre. So this rally will be kind of important to kind of highlight that the kind of injustice and demand that all refugees be released. And then on Sunday um, at 2pm, um, there's going to be a, a cricket match um, celebrating refugees' freedom. Uh, in fact, this Sunday, yeah, it's going to be happening at 2pm at the Fairbarn Park at Wood Street in Ascot Vale. And actually, maybe, Chloe, you wanted to say anything a bit more about the event um, in terms of the details. Sorry, I forgot to turn my mic on. Um, we do have um, a refugee um, up next, Abby, who's um, actually one of the organisers of this cricket match. Um, it's in um, solidarity with um, you know hundreds of the refugees who are still locked up in detention, but also a celebration of freedom. But uh, I'll let Abby you know talk a little bit about that in the next interview if you stay tuned. Yeah, and um, some of the next kind of events I just want to kind of highlight is um, I want to kind of highlight... Um, so again, um, I want to highlight on Wednesday, um, the 27th 
of March, um, of April, I mean, there's going to be a public forum um, by Jeff Sparrow, Crimes Against Nature, launching his new book, and that's going to be at the Sam Merrifield Library at 762 Mount Alexander Road in Mooney Ponds. And then on Wednesday, April the 27th, there's actually going to be another fundraiser for re- um, that's organised by refugees, Musicians for Freedom, and that's going to be happening at 7.30pm at the Brunswick Ballroom at 314 Sydney Road in Brunswick. And then just the next several events I just want to highlight is on Thursday, April the 28th to Saturday, May the 7th, there's going to be the Human Rights Art and Film Festival. Haven't had a complete look at the agenda for that, but we'll probably have a bit of a look for the following week. And then on Thursday, 28th April, there'll be the International Workers Memorial Day at 10.30am at Memorial Rock, corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Street, Carlton. And then... On Sunday, May the 1st, there's going to be the May Day Rally in March at 1.30pm at the Shrades Hall, corner of Victoria Street and Ligon Street in Carlton. Anyway, I think that um, sums up all the kind of different events that are kind of um, done happening. We'll just go play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Got to let them in, got to let them in, got to let them in. Got to let them in. Zoom back to space. There's no borders, no border force. Making orders, just a single human race inhabiting the same place. Zoom back in, see the borders. Global fast 
for a century, only standardized in the 80s. So why immigrants so hated? We're all being divided, being played like we're blinded to the bait that keeps us biting, to the lies that keep us fighting. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go, and I don't like it, and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. Hello and welcome back to Green Left Radio. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Uh, you just heard Got to Let Them In by Matt Ward earlier. And it's a song that's um, about refugee rights and it's a very sort of um, relevant one because our next sort of segment um, is an interview with RB, a refugee who's recently been released. Um, Chloe's been... Um, spending much more sort of time in this campaign. So, Chloe, do you want to introduce RB and get him on the program? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Leo, for that introduction. And, yeah, um, and thanks, um, RB, for being here. It's really great news about the refugees um, being released from the detention centres um, like the Park Hotel and Bytar and, and, and Mitre and Broadmeadows and Brisbane. Um, and we know it's almost 10 years too late um, and that you should have never been put into detention in the first place. But, Abi, how does it feel to be free from detention? Uh, good morning for having me here. Well, kind of strange feelings. At first, could not believe that it's actually happened or I'm still dreaming. Second, it's a bittersweet for me as our friends who we spent years on offshore with still there. I felt like reborn, even that stress and anxiety have given by the long detention. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you for for telling me what it feels like. Um, there was a 
you know, there was a lot of neglect on the prison islands like Nauru and Manus Island, which is where you were and hundreds of other refugees um, who were kept against um, their will. Um, and that was for six years. Um, and, you know, you may have been there when refugees died, like Reza Barati, who was murdered by guards. Um, wh- you know, what was it like for you on Manus before you were medevac to detention center, um, to the detention center in Brisbane? Well, there are still hundreds of them detained mm. on those islands in limbo. The experience I have got was dealt with the stress and anxiety for all those years. I have I have been there alongside hundreds of others. We got through so much and hardly believe that we have made it and survived. But some of us unfortunately did not. Yeah, these these half, harsh policies have created a lot of um, suffering and, and even death. Um, but Abi, just to get into some of the experiences um, that you had surviving in onshore detention, so after you were medevaced here, um, especially at the Park Hotel during the pandemic, did you want to just tell our listeners what that was like for you? I have been in all like almost three different alternative places of detention since arrived in Australia in 2019 under Medivac law, which included two hotels. The recent one was Par Hotel, where mm-hmm. I got released from alongside some others. It was even more stress than to be on offshore. This was another level of stress, especially there was a when there was a COVID outbreak I was one of the 25 refugees who contracted COVID. Even that hotel was always isolation for us, but still we had to go in uh, in other isolation rooms, which were located on the first floor in the same hotel. I appreciate and grateful to have supporters out there who never gave up on us and fought for our freedom so hard, especially since... And a star go to our hotel, which attracted more media and people's attention than ever. Yeah, and um, you know we know that the Australian government has uh, progressively reduced the, um, you know, the rights of refugees to re- to receive any government benefits, um, and that includes for some refugees access to health and education, uh, some are denied the, the right to work. Um, but these conditions obviously change depending on what visa you're on. Can you, uh, Abby, can you tell us, um, tell our listeners about the visa that you've been put on after almost 10 years in detention and, and what that's going to be like for you and other refugees? Well, I have got a bridging visa, which I, where I got told the very first thing that I can't engage in any kind of studies which I was keen and desperate to do when I get freedom because I could not complete back home. So that have already taken away from me. Second thing is haven't had my family in almost a decade. And the visa I've been given still won't let me reunited with my family and loved ones. I was almost 21 when I stepped foot on Australian soil and have spent years, the best years of my life after got released with the just two weeks of accommodation and a few hundreds of financial support by the government to start over with. Yeah, um, that's uh, that sounds um, yeah really difficult, um, Abi, for you and everyone else because you know you have been given your 
freedom from detention, but there's a lot more work to do um, with refugee rights here. Um, I, I think, um, no, we'll just go into the fact that uh, you're a professional cricketer. Um, that's your dream to, to play cricket. Um, I know you organised a cricket tournament while you were on Manus, which was really difficult to do um, under the tough circumstances you were you were living in there. Uh, but but now that you've been released, you've organised to play a cricket match with the community this Sunday, the 24th of April. Could you tell us why you and the other refugees decided to organise this game of cricket? Yeah, of course. Uh, actually, this was sort of my dream that when I got released would have something that could bring us, bring all of us together, include uh, those lovely people who supported us all those years and never gave up on us and helped us get our lives back uh, and show and also show solidarity with the people who are still in lockup offshore and onshore. Yeah, and it's going to be a fun day. Hopefully uh, it'll be... Uh, it won't rain. Um, so far, it's looking good. But, yeah, if um, people are listening, you can come and meet, um, you know, Abi and the other refugees. Um, it's going to be held at Fairbarn Park, Woods Street in Ascot Vale on Oval 6, and that's at 2 p.m. this Sunday. Um, and, yeah, I you know, just wanted to reiterate that both the Coalition and the Labour Party support um, offshore detention and also boat, boat turnbacks. Uh, but the Labour government has promised to not support TPVs, uh, the temporary protection visa that you're on, on the basis that it does leave refugees in limbo for years. Um, and also both major parties maintain that anyone who came here since 2013 will never be resettled here. And this includes people like you, Abi, um, who is a recognised refugee Um so, yeah, unlike them, we, we welcome refugees and we'll keep fighting together to get rid of these t- temporary protection visas and hopefully you can be re- reunited with your family and have full rights and protection here soon. Um, but before we um, wrap up the interview, Abi, did you have any last comments that you'd like to contribute? Well, all I would say that game is not over yet, please. Telling every supporter out there, please do not give up on us. That's a that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning, Abi. We really appreciate you um, taking the time uh, to talk uh, with us about your experiences, and we'll hopefully listeners will come and meet us um, on Sunday and play some cricket. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Abi. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. CoHealth is a 3CR supporter.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're just having an interview with Abby, um, who is a refugee, a refugee who has just been recently kind of released. And yeah, we just had a bit of a discussion with him about his, obviously his experiences of, of detention and also promoting the, the kind of community cricket match that's going to be happening at 2 PM, um, this Sunday. Now, the, um, the kind of we're, we've got like about ten minutes kind of left in terms of um, in terms of discussions, and I guess I sort of wanted to cover um, something that's been you know kind of dominated the media, and it's in the context I guess of this kind of federal election. But this is um, concerns the kind of issue that of Catherine Deves, who is the who is an anti-transgender campaigner, hard right line right winger, and now he is. And now she is Prime Minister Scott Morrison's captain's pick for the seat of Wangren. Now, that is, that is a seat that is actually currently held by independent MP, um, Zali Sigal, who actually in turn won it from former, um, Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Now, I don't really have any sort of illusions in Zali Sigal. I think, you know, I think she is actually generally a right winger at the end of the day, not, doesn't necessarily represent much left, uh, of a left wing sort of progression, but, you know, in the contrast to kind of Tony Abbott, um, it what who you know has absolutely kind of awful kind of sexist sort of views and and, and so on. Yeah, you know, I think that was probably a marked kind of improvement. Now, one of the kind of thing, the issues I guess with this whole Catherine Deves um, scenario is some of the things, and just to give a bit of a trigger warning of like transphobia, like some of the some of the comments that she has made has been absolutely kind of appalling and it actually kind of reflects the fact that the liberal party and in fact politicians um it happens it seems to happen every kind of election kind of period but this happens actually even in the united states quite markedly it appears that you know trans the trans community is always used as almost like a punching bag for politicians to contest and i think you know catherine deves is like represents the kind of latest in this kind of phenomena and in fact, um, Dev is the head of an organisation that calls itself Save Women Sports Australia, um, which is lobbying to have transgender women banned from playing as women in sport. Um, and then, of course, this is I've obviously as as um, as um, the author of this article, Shane Crocker, points out, which is in um, the pages of Green Left. Um, this is actually an issue that is a bit close to Morrison because, you know, in Morrison in February, actually, it's pointed out that he actually backed Tasmanian Senator Claire Chandler's private members bill that to allow sporting organisations to inc- exclude transgender people from single sex sports, saying the bill was terrific. And I guess this is even, <laughs> even kind of more outrageous, some of Deves' comment. She, Kind of like she made posts on her Twitter account, um, comparing herself as an anti-trans activist to the anti-Nazi resistance fighters of France during the Second World War. Uh, I mean, you have to be quite full of yourself to make that comparison. But then, of course, she only later apologized the kind. But of course, then she sort of made a, a, another sort of transphobic comment of like basically saying, I commit to commit continuing the fate, fight for safety of wom- girls and women. I, I don't think, um, trans women are women. And so it's sort of like, I think this is, this is quite, you know, this is quite outrageous. And the fact that the Morrison government, the Morrison, well, Morrison in particular, because there are divisions in the Liberal Party over this, over her canancy, is coming in to support her, I think is completely outrageous. And of course, Morrison is trying to justify this on some 
basis of you know in light of all the kind of allegations that have come in the against in the parliament that he's he's coming in here to support women this is what he stands for but of course he's supporting women by trying to um come behind an outright transphobe um and of course worse than this devs is actually in general she's not just opposed to trans rights she's actually opposed to the whole lgbtiq community in fact she said that um there was a twit tweet that she sort of serviced that she was triggered by the rainbow pride flag and i think yeah there's a lot of irony um happening and in fact you know despite despite the fact that there are calls from liberal moderates to disendorse devs for her extreme views um morrison even went um went yeah morrison as late as april 16 have said that he devs continues to have his full support and i think this is quite ironic because as um Stephen kind of points out here Pauline Hanson was disendorsed by the Liberal Party for actually far less than what um, what what um, Devs is a, a guilty of, and also here's the big irony. Actually, that I can end it. I'll end it on a bit of humour and a bit of a funny point. The big sort of irony is Morrison was sort of going on about in response to Devs being sort of cancelled on sort of social media and all this sort of outrage. He said he said Australians are kind of sick of being of walking on eggshells, and so I stand by Devs' views, and now. Here's the irony. Uh, despite Morrison's comments, the Liberal Party have actually effectively kind of tried to cancel a lot of Dev's public appearances. So it's not it's not it's not the left who's cancelling uh, cancelling um, Catherine Dev's in this case. It's actually the Liberal Party because they realise how much of a, elect- a liability she is, especially since it's for a seat that is actually quite marginal. So you kind of find you kind of think what is the Liberal Party thinking? Like Zali Sigel, actually, to her credit, while she doesn't have very left-wing politics uh to her credit she is actually quite good on social issues so it's sort of like you know what what raises the question of what they're actually what is morrison actually appealing to by getting behind this candidate yeah um yeah just two sort of quick points um firstly echoing what you just said jacob um i think it tactically does make much sense for the liberals to run uh Deves in this seat um moringa not just the fact that it's marginal but just its profile it's a sort of inner city professional socially liberal um sort of um demographic which you know actually we've seen can sometimes be conducive to quite rampant transphobia but yeah especially for a marginal it does make sense to run a candidate like that um on the second it's um very interesting how I think the Liberals have tried, and I think, you know, now, just given the cancellations of her um, public appearances, failed um, to create um, trans issues as a sort of culture war. Um, I think, you know, the question of women, um, trans women playing sport, you know, it is it is a little bit of a complex one. It's, it's one that, you know... It, you need nuance and complexity, but it's ultimately one that isn't um, it isn't the most pressing issue, especially for an Australian federal election. And I think um, uh, the sort of Christian right and social conservative elements in this um, state have um, really attacked trans rights and trans people um, now that a lot of the sort of fights for the broader LGBTQ community um, have been won and trans people are the ones that are... Um, facing the brunt of this sort of socially conservative backlash. Um, and, yeah, I think what we've clearly seen is Morrison trying to tap into this sort of culture war about trans people, and I think it's really important to firstly um, reject 
you know, its need and not pay too much attention to it. And then secondly, offer, you know, um, unconditional solidarity with um, trans people because they continue to be a really marginalised community in Australia. So we'll see how this plays out. Um, the time for sort of candidate nominations is closed, so she's definitely confirmed as a candidate. We'll see um, what happens in the state of Warringah, but my prediction is that the Liberals might have just shot themselves in the foot and um, lost the chance to win a really key seat. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I kind of imagine that. I mean, given the there is a, and this is actually something that we might that might be worth actually discussing and unpacking actually a bit more in the future. Um, there is a kind of like a wave of sort of like you know more liberal-minded, conservative kind of independents um, running in a number of seats. In fact, there's actually a potential chance that Josh Frydenberg could lose their seat to one of these sort of independents. And so, based on that sort of trajectory, I kind of imagine that. Um, I can't imagine the Liberals actually winning against Zali Segal in this context. And uh, I think they, yeah, I think you're probably right. They probably shut themselves in the foot. And we're getting into kind of the end of the program. Um, so maybe I'll just give an opportunity for all our presenters to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Uh, I think it's been actually a very great um, program. Um, we've covered quite a lot of ground. And I guess, yeah, stay tuned for Earth Matters. But, yeah, maybe any final words that Leo and Chloe want to, might want to no, add? Just echoing your sentiments, Jacob, a couple of little things. And it's great to have you listening Friday mornings as always. Yeah, thanks for, for listening. And, um, yeah, uh, please tune in again next next week um, on Friday. And it's always good to to um, do the radio show with Leo and Jacob. So thanks, thanks to you two as well. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.